Our theme this year, as you've heard, is loved by God, and we're going to focus on that theme, and there's a reason for that that I'll share with you as we move through today's message. If you have your Bibles, would you find 1 Thessalonians again? Brian read the entire text. I'm going to focus on one phrase from that text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I want to begin reading again right here in verse 2. Verse 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God that he has chosen you. I want you to be resolved today that you are loved by God. And there's a very important reason. In fact, there are several reasons that I'll share. I'm going to give you some truths today. Truths are doctrines and then how we flesh out those in four words. So I'm going to give you four words that I want you to take with you uh, today. And it hopefully will last you throughout the year as we come back to this theme. To be resolved that you're loved by God is not going to come about because we make effort or we're more educated uh, or do we have our own personal discernment, but because we have spiritual discernment or revelation. Here Paul tells the Thessalonians, I love you guys, and I pray for you constantly. I give thanks to the Lord for you because, one, you're chosen by God. And the reason I know you're chosen by God is that the gospel came to you in great power, and you received it. God gave a message through us. We were convicted of that message. We came with purity in that message and you receive that message, and you are chosen by God. No doubt about it, we give thanks to God because you're chosen, and we know you're chosen beyond that because you were changed. Paul says this. He says, not only were you changed, if you listen to what Brian read from this text, you find that this group of people who had heard the gospel that had come in power uh, began to uh, be real excited about their faith. And they were faithfully working and serving the Lord. They were energetic through the Holy Spirit in their service to one another. They were also examples to all those around them. They were evangelistic, sharing the gospel that they also had received. And then the last passage or last part of this chapter says they were expecting the Lord Jesus Christ to come back. No doubt about it, these who were loved by God were loved by God with the gospel that brought about a change that was evident to everyone around them. Um, and, and before we go too far, uh, that, that's the case for anyone who is saved. If you're saved, it is because God chose to set his love upon you and to give a message of hope to you, which is the gospel, that brought about a change in your life and you've never been the same. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away, behold, all things become new. That's a great verse and a great passage on a New Year's Day to rehearse. To really be changed, to really be made new, is to have the gospel act in your life in such a way that you have a change, a change that is ongoing, a change that took place when you were saved and a change that is ongoing. New lamps for old. You remember that phrase from Aladdin's lamp? 
Uh, Aladdin's wife decided that the lamp was old and dingy, and she wanted to trade it in for one that was brighter and shinier. She didn't realize the power of the lamp was not what was on the outside, but what was on the inside. That's true of all of us. You can make resolutions today, and I think it's always a good thing at the beginning of the year to think about what you want to accomplish in the new year and those kinds of uh, resolutions that we want to make to do better or to get better or to help others along the way. Um, But it's not so much what we press from the outside on ourselves that's going to bring about really a lasting change, but what takes place on the inside. This is the difference between us and uh, our lives before Christ and those who are without Christ. Um, res- resolutions typically are, are behavioral modification devices. I'm going to stop doing something so I can start doing something else. For some of you, you're like, I'm going to stop smoking so I can run a marathon. Or I'm going to stop eating so much so I can, and on it goes. And typically those are, I'm going to change the way I behave. I'm going to change my behaviors. Christianity is so powerful and wonderful because it doesn't modify our behavior, but it changes our heart. The gospel came with power to the Thessalonians and changed them from the inside out. Are you following this so far? If you are, say amen. I don't know how many stayed and watched the ball drop, but for your sake, I did not. So I'm full of energy this morning, all right? So I just need to know you're with me that as we begin this new year, and we begin talking about knowing that you're loved by God, I want you to get the sense that we're talking about something tangible that we experience as believers on the inside that expresses itself to the outside. A resolution works quite differently. Uh, A goal, uh, a desire, we're going to press in on some disciplines, nothing wrong with those things. But when we talk about the love of God, we're talking about something that he's done for us. What's on the inside really does count. I want you to look with me as to why this mattered to Paul for the Thessalonians that they were loved by God. Chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, you guys, you guys are chosen, changed, loved by God. He wants them to know that. They would have probably not felt loved before the gospel came to them. Most everyone that I read about In Thessalonica was uh, a person on the outside looking in. There were very few people that had anything in Thessalonica. There were the haves and the have-nots, and most of everyone in Thessalonica were the have-nots. They may have uh, felt abandoned by their government. They may have been uh, abandoned by the gods that they followed. And so when Paul came with this message of the gospel, and they found out that they actually were loved by God, it changed everything. So Paul says this, if you have chapter 3, just move there and just kind of walk with me, if you will, through this chapter uh, as to why Paul has a concern for these who are loved by God. Therefore, verse 1, therefore we could not bear it any longer. We were willing to be left in Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by the afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Now, let's just pause for a moment, give you a little bit of background. Paul had preached in Thessalonica for two weeks, got ran out of town. He did not know whether or not their faith was real, genuine, and lasting. Finding out that it is, he was concerned that they may may have the wrong idea about what they were going through. They're going through uh, some, some serious affliction, persecution, attacks by Satan, and, and, and may have felt they weren't loved by God. Abandoned, possibly. Paul's concerned about that. 
Verse 4, so when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you would suffer affliction just as it's come to pass, just as you know. For this reason, verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Do you see Paul's concern? How does a person feel when they go through affliction and difficulty while at the same time serving God? When you give your life over to the Lord, begin to be dedicated to His service, to, to live out your faith, to labor in love, to hope with expectation, and then while you're doing all of that, face unprecedented difficulty, trials, persecution, satanic attack. Verse 6, but Timothy has come to us and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. What a passage. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you all, for all the joy we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in what y'all? Love. Love for one another and for all as we do for you. Hey, not just for uh, each other that you know, but even people you don't know, people that you may not want to know. I want you to love. And verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Just think about this. Just think with me through this. This is so clear, isn't it? You have a group of people that were going through difficulty, persecution, and affliction, and Paul may have been concerned that not only would they feel abandoned by the Lord, they would be then vulnerable to uh, the attacks of Satan and, and just feel like everything that they had believed was, was in vain. Or, isn't this just typical of us? Or, when going through difficulty, affliction, scares, concerns, you begin to ask the question, have I done something to make God mad? Have I done something now that God, and this is, we would never say this because we've been taught, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and that's a great, great truth. But in our hearts, we begin to ask, well, if I'm going through all of this, does he really love me? Have I done something? Here's what Paul wants the church to know. You, you are chosen by God. You are loved by God. And that love is sincere and genuine. Love then abounds in you and love makes you blameless before God. That is amazing. Look at verse 13. I want you to be established in blamelessness. There's not one person in Thessalonica that could have said that they were perfect, that since following Christ, they'd followed all the commandments, they'd done everything that they were even taught by the apostles. But Paul said, I, I want you to be blameless. 
Uh, this takes me back to our study in Revelation. If I can just tie that in before I go any further. In Revelation, we ended up talking about how that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the first class tattletale. We all were in elementary school. We all remember the tattletale. He's that. He is constantly accusing us. And his accusations against us are often rooted in some sort of fact. Because we are not faultless, are we? But before God, we are blameless. We may have committed sin, but we know that He has loved us, and because He has loved us, He has cleansed us by His blood, and therefore we are blameless before Him. This is why John writes this in 1 John 4, 18. Perfect love casts out all fear. We have been loved by God with a perfect love. We don't lose it. It doesn't diminish when we are at fault because He has chosen to love us with a love that cannot ever falter. It's perfect. And as a result, cast out all fear. I can still come before my Father, even in my fault, knowing that in the blood of Jesus, I can be cleansed and be made blameless. This is what Paul wanted the church to know. So go back to chapter 1, verse 4, and I want you to see this. He says to them, you are are beloved of God. That might be your translation, or loved by God. Everyone say, loved by God. Loved by God. I want to focus on that phrase, and I want to do that by giving you two truths here. Number one, number one, love by God, know this, God is love. God is love. We say, I know that. I've heard that all my life. I've been reading a lot on the love of God, getting ready for this year, and uh, probably you can understand this. I realize after reading the love of God, there are so many questions I still have unanswered because the love of God is a deep ocean. Oswald Chambers said that we ought to keep ourselves in that ocean of love because he refers to Jude. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. You you can't keep yourself out of the love of God. That's not what Jude meant. But what he meant by that is that you are to constantly focus on the love of God. We say things like this, love God more. Don't leave your first love. Don't let your love for God grow cold. But before you ever can make those statements about what you do and what I do concerning the love of God, we have to be resolved about something. We have to be resolved before we're commanded to love God and love others as we love ourselves and to keep that first commandment, to know this first before that. I'm loved by God. I have to be convicted and know that I'm loved by God. What does it mean that God is love? Let's think about that for a moment. John said it very clearly, very succinctly in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. Well, it means that God is uh, the the progenitor of love. There, There is no love apart from God. God has always been love. God didn't learn to love when he had his children. God has always loved. He loved before there was ever anything in creation. He loved himself perfectly within the Trinity. There was a perfect love by God. Love then, therefore, is rooted in God. No God, no real love. No God, no real love. Can you love by not knowing God? Yes. Because God is so gracious that he's enabled even those who are unbelievers. Even atheists can love, can't they? They love their children and uh, love their spouse and maybe love their country as patriots. But true love is known only when we know God. Why? Because God is love. 
He was loved before there was ever anyone around. Therefore, God defines love. God defines love. Would you agree that God defines love if God is love? Well, that's not what most people think. Most people think that God is defined by love. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that love is God, but God is love. What is, why? Well, because we all have a different idea of what love is. We have our own subjective um, opinions about love. We have tons of songs about love and poems about love and emotions about love and on and on it goes. And we can project our ideas of love on God and that would be idolatry. Because God is not our love, God is his love. And therefore, he's not defined by our idea of love. He defines actually what love is. In fact, that's why I think oftentimes we, when we talk about love, have to go to 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe you have already gone there, but in 1 Corinthians 13, you have this definition of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It does not force its own way. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice in wrong. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That's not, uh, that's not a sentimental emotion, is it? This is a commitment and covenant of love. And then J- Jesus told us this, greater love has no one than someone lay his life down for his friend. So as I begin to think about the love of God, I think he's all of these things. And I think about how the Lord Jesus Christ loved me so much that he laid down his life for me. We understand that a little bit uh, as adults. If you're uh, now looking back at your folks, your parents, and you know, back in the day when they were doing things for you and you didn't realize the sacrifice they were making, you didn't know that they were not buying things, not doing things, not, not being able to maybe do some of the stuff they dreamed about because why? They loved you. It wasn't a sacrifice probably on their part, but you look back now and see how that they laid down their life for you. And you didn't notice that when you were 16 or 15, but, but as you get to be uh, an adult, you, you recognize how your mama laid her life down for you, gave you birth, took care of you, nurtured you, raised you up. And you can respect that and you can look back at that with great fondness now. It's just a little illustration of what it means that God has loved us by giving his life for us, sacrificing everything for us. And God is the one who divines love, and God has chosen to love the world. The Bible tells us, John 3, 16, another familiar passage, for God so loved what, y'all? Someone would ask, does God love sinners? Every once in a while, we'll talk about how that God loves sinners, and there'll be a well-meaning, someone young in their theology who will come up and say, Pastor, God does not love sinners, He hates sinners. And why do they say that? Because there's plenty of passages that back that up, that God hates sinners. We try to soften that blow when we read passages like that and say, well, God doesn't hate sinners. He hates the sin and loves the sinner. And that was a very popular notion in the 80s. Uh, people were saying that pretty regularly. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, the reality is uh, God hates sinners. And at the same time, he loves sinners. You say, how is that possible? Well, one, because he's God and he is love. And where there is love, there is perfect hate. And so when the Bible says God so loved the world, you can rest assured he loves everyone in the world. He has loved with a very special love. 
And he has laid that love and showed that love to the world. And how did he do that? Well, Paul says, by demonstrating that love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is showing that love. He's sharing that love. How does Jesus share his love with us? He showed it by laying down his life, by giving his life. But how does he share his love? Because his desire is not only to show us his love. And this is where it takes the sinner from being that one estranged from God into a relationship with God to understand God's love in a deeper way. And that is by God's sharing God wants to share his love. In, in John 17, John 17, Jesus uh, is praying and he's prayed to the Father. He prayed this way. Uh, he lifted his eyes and he said to his Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Okay, what is he praying? Glorify me that I might glorify you. Since you've given him, that is me, all, that's Jesus, all authority over flesh and given to eternal life to all who you gave to him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ who you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Father, glorify me in your presence with a glory that I had before the world existed. Here's what Jesus prayed in the garden. Glorify me. Was he glorified? Yes. Has he been given a name which is above every other name? Absolutely. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right, that Jesus is Lord. Glory, 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 glory. Jesus has been glorified. But in verse 24, Jesus prayed, I desire that they also, who are they? Those who would believe on him. Those who would become believers, who would be saved. Those who believe on me would be where I am and see my glory, the glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you've sent me. I've known them. I've made known your name to them. I will continue to make it known that, here it is, listen, that the love with which you loved me will also be in them and I will be in them. Jesus didn't just come to show his love to all the world. He came to show his love so that he might share his love by sharing his glory in a way that would be eternal. I'm going to give them eternal life. Where? They can share in my glory. This is why God has showed his love for you. He showed his love for you that he might share his glory with you. You know, we might say, what are the attributes of God? And we can list his attributes, his attributes or his characteristics. And I would say, first and foremost, you're going to start with holiness. God is holy, completely without sin and pure. And in that, we have incredible, incredible insight into his glory. God loved us so much that he desired not only to show that love, but to share in that love by allowing us to share in his glory. God so loved, he's so great, he's decided because of his love to share his love. God is love. So God is love does not mean just that I get to define what God is, but I begin to understand what love is all about. When I look at God, I look at the fact that God is loved with an everlasting love, willing to send his son to lay his life down for me in order that I might share in his glory. That's why you have to be saved to know his love in a very specific way. Yes, God loves sinners. But God has a special love for the saved. 
And the sinners, though experience God's love in this world, will never experience the glory of God in heaven. Therefore, miss out on a very special love that God has demonstrated through His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a love that God's children know that the rest of the world does not know. And a love that we're going to experience throughout eternity that those who are unbelievers will miss out forever in hell. God is love. Number one, God is love. And uh, that's one truth. Two, uh, second truth real quick, you are loved by God. You are loved by God. First Thessalonians 1.4, read it again with me. For we know brothers loved by God. This is incredible. This is the foundation of the gospel. God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loves us. He's given you the gospel in Thessalonica because he loved you. He has given to us today salvation through the preaching of the gospel because he loves us. That's the foundation of our faith. And then he's brought us into this family. Notice just the feeling of verse four. You don't even have to break it down in the Greek. You can get the feeling just reading it. For we know brothers this is a family that has been brought together. Why? Because of the love of God. You are loved by the Father and brought into a family. So you have the Thessalonians being told by Paul, the foundation of your relationship with God is his love. You've been brought into a loving family, and that is why their focus is on the future. We can't wait for our Jesus to come back. I don't know if this is true. It's, it's, it's one of those things where you read in, in, in uh, church history, so you can't take it to the bank, but there, there, is a, there was the, the notion and, and uh, the teaching that when Peter, after conversion, w- was following Christ as an apostle, would hear a rooster crow, he would say in the Latin, they say de- domini, they say dereo domini, I, I long, I deeply long to see my Lord it was said that he would cry every time he heard a rooster, and he would say, I deeply long to see my Lord. He had loved, you remember when he was restored, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Do you love me? The love for Peter was rooted in Christ's love for him. This is the foundation of the Thessalonians' faith, that God loved them. They brought it, brought into the family of God, and they expected the Lord to come back with great joy. Why? They loved him. They first understood he loved them. Now they understand I'm in a family and I'm secure and I can't wait for him to return. So I love him. I want to give you four words here, just four words for, for you uh, uh, believers today that will help you understand maybe better God's love. Is, and and we'll kind of all through the year, we're going to kind of back to this theme. Uh, number one, the love of God is beyond all measure. It's already been said this morning. His love is magnanimous. God's love is magnanimous. When you read about this church being loved by God, you need to know that the love that God had for them went beyond all measure. It was gracious and generous. No one in Thessalonica had done anything to deserve the love of God. They didn't even know Jesus. They'd never heard about Jesus, but God chose to love them and graciously give to them what they did not deserve. And he has done that for us. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in the sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love is so gracious, so magnanimous. It's been expressed tangibly. He's expressed it, as we've mentioned, through the giving of Jesus Christ. It's been extended to all. His common grace is known to every person who walks on the face of the earth. There's no one who can escape the love of God, no matter how evil they are, how wicked they are. They still enjoy the graces of our good God. But it's exceedingly great to those two of us who have believed, because we recognize that in the cross, God has demonstrated his love for us. And the cross communicates, doesn't it? The cross communicates that God loves us. He hates sin, and it has to be punished, but that he loves you. And the cross is a picture of God's incredible love for you. And therefore, secondly, the love of God is meaningful. If I were just to say God is love, for some that wouldn't mean a whole lot. But for those of us who have been saved, we know how meaningful that is. And we're growing to know more and more about the meaning of his love. Paul put this in a letter to the Thessalonians, another letter he wrote to them. It's in chapter three of the second letter, second Thessalonians. He said, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Who's the evil one, y'all? He's going to guard you. And we have this confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. May the Lord, listen to this, direct your hearts to the love of God. Why would you talk so much about the love of God? I mean, there's so many things to talk about. Like, we need to talk about how evil people are and how evil this culture is and how we need to get right with God. And it's a new year, and we better get some things straight. We get some things right. It starts here. If we can get this right, then we have created a channel for all the blessings of God to flow. Then if our hearts are directed to the love of God, then we are convicted by that great grace that he's given to us and as a result, begin to seek his glory. Paul put it this way, but God being rich in his mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. The reason Christ's love is so meaningful is because he has chosen to share with us himself. He's done this comprehensively. God did not just save you to get you into heaven, but he saved you to get heaven in you. Someone put it this way, I'll quote him. He didn't just save you to get hell, you out of hell, but to get the hell out of you. I, I, was, I don't know why I had a country music station on, and I don't listen to country music, but all country music is about, excuse me, raising hell. They, they actually say that in the songs. I, I think we as Christians need to say, man, how was your weekend? Man, we were raising heaven. I mean, God didn't just save you to take you to heaven, but to put heaven in you. Another way to put that is, his love is so comprehensive, he has loved you not just to save your soul from hell, but to sanctify your soul on earth. His love is meaningful. I mean, when I'm convicted of the love of God for me, it changes the way in which I want to live for him. If I were to just say, hey guys, 
hey, what are we here for? We have these saying up here, love him, tell them, it's everywhere. And it's like inside statement, it's inside for us. It's not something we express to the world. It's just kind of like, wow, we're here. We're committed to the great commandment. What is the great commandment? Love God, all, all your being. Love God, love God, love God. I mean, we're to love God. I say it at the end of every message, at the end of every service. I sure hope you grew in love with God. But to grow in love with God is the goal. Because if I were to say, hey, grow in love with God, but I understand that He loves you first, would undo what John says, we love Him because He first loved us. This is why God's love is an understanding of so meaningful. The more I understand how much he loves me and I rest in the ocean of his love, the more I want to love him. I mean, to, to turn that around and to say, love him, tell them, I realize can be a legalistic resolution that is only behavior modification of I'm going to make up my mind to love God more. When, we're, when our hearts are directed to the love of God and we keep ourselves, as Jude said, in the love of God and we know what Paul said about us, that we are beloved or loved by God, we're starting at the right place. I love him because he first loved me. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. Remember that old song? There's no other friend so kind to see. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. His love is not only comprehensive, it's caring. It's covering. It's covering. Here in verse 10 of chapter 1, you have these who are in Thessalonica looking for the Lord to come, knowing that they've been saved from the wrath, the judgment of God. They are blameless before him. God's love is constantly correcting us. Um, these people in Thessalonica probably would have wondered, why are we going through the difficulties we're going through? And here's one of the reasons God's perfecting of us often happens through his correcting of us. And sometimes that comes through the affliction he allows in our life or the difficulties or trials. You know what the writer of Hebrews says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. How many of you have ever been disciplined by the Lord? He chastises every son whom he loves. Um, if you say, well, I've never been disciplined by the Lord, then you're not His. Because everyone who is a son of the Father has been disciplined. I mean, every once in a while you'll have a parent they will say, you know, we never spanked our children. And what is our response? Yeah, we can tell. <laughs> I never disciplined my child. God disciplines us. His discipline is hard, it's not harsh. Yeah, and you know when it's His discipline. Because the Holy Spirit immediately convicts you in order to correct you. But His love is a covenant of love, and it's an everlasting love that you can't escape, so it's a meaningful love. God's love is meaningful. It's not just this thought, oh, God is love, God is love. No, it's meaningful to us. Um, it's motivating, isn't it? Look in verse 3. You have the people in Thessalonica who are laboring in love, they are steadfast in hope, and, and, um, and they're working. They're employed. I mean, one of the greatest motivators of all is love, isn't it? 
There are a lot of ways in which people work and reasons they work. There's forced labor. There's work, labor because um, you, you have bills to pay and responsibilities. But then there's a labor of love. When you know the love of God, you and I then are motivated to love Him and tell them. And, and when we're motivated that way, we minister. And th- this goes down to this. Um, God's love is a love that motivates us to do what? To do what He does. You, you know what uh, ministry is? Uh, we define it this way around here. Ministry is meeting needs in love. Meeting needs in love. When is it really ministry? When it's not out of obligation, it's out of love. When it's not out of I have to because I love you. And when we meet someone's need and we do it because we love them, that's true ministry. This church had it. This church had it. Thessalonica had it. And they were doing that work of faith. They were laboring in love. They were an expected hope. They were caring for one another. They were meeting each other's needs and they were doing it out of love. Paul says, you are abounding in your love over and over you are growing in your love, and I'm grateful. You love each other. Continue in that way. He reminded them, yes, you love one another. You're ministering to one another. Continue to do that throughout this, this letter. And when we minister to one another, we show the love of God to each other. I, I know that God loves you, and I want you to be convinced of that. And I want others to be convinced of that. And the one way in which others will be convinced of that is they'll see God's love through us in in ministry. If I'm going to resolve that I'm loved by God, it's going to result in a a, a very motivating ministry. I mean, I'd be motivated by God's love to love others. Um, I think that's what really makes the Christian... So um, attractive. Song of Solomon 2.2, the Bible says, As the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Lilies, lilies were flowers that were really common in Israel, still are. You wouldn't probably notice them. They'd be kind of like a common flower here. You just kind of walk by, don't notice it. But you might be walking by a field and notice the fragrance And then look and see, that fragrance is coming from those common flowers. Do you know what's so special about the Thessalonians? They were pariah people. Most of them didn't have much. Paul actually had to tell the church, you need to respect one another. Why? Because probably some of them were slaves, servants. They came to church, and now they're serving in the church as slaves during the week at church as leaders and elders. And so Paul said, you need to respect one another. Why? Because they weren't much. They weren't lovely. Uh, they didn't have a lot of money. Uh, they have a lot of prestige and power, most of them. But they were God's lilies. Just common flowers. But when the love of God flowed out of them and through them, it, it, it diffused such a fragrance that pointed people to the throne of God. Well, that's us. You know, we might think too much of ourselves sometimes, and oftentimes we don't think enough. But you are loved by God, and if you define yourself by that, then you don't have to define yourself by what other people think about you, what they say about you, what kind of report they give on you. You don't have to define yourself by your performance evaluation. You don't have to define yourself by your wardrobe, or by your neighborhood, or by your talents or skills. 
can say, you know, I'm loved by God. And being convinced of that, convicted of that, I can love others. And God loved me. God loved me. I'm going to tell you, there's times I'm really confused as to why God would have ever loved me. It's because he's love. He is love and he's chosen to love me. And he's chosen to love you. And that's meaningful, y'all. He chose to love you with a magnanimous love. And as a result, common, everyday dirt people, that's us, made of dirt, are loved by God. So that when we recognize that, we are convicted of that, convinced of that we can love each other. Which means I don't, I don't have to live up to any standard to please God, and you don't have to live up to any standard for me to love you. This is what it means to be loved of God, is to, is, is to know that I'm His and He is mine. Um, I, I want you today to be resolved to be loved by God. That you are loved by God. I want you to make that resolution. And as a result, I believe if you are, you'll draw near to Him. You'll remove the hindrances and the weights and the sins that so easily beset you. And you'll grow in your relationship with Him throughout this year. And I'm for all the different ways in which you're going to make some resolutions that are spiritual. You know, uh, read your Bible. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to pray together with my family. Family worship's going to increase. All of those things are important. But they have to be rooted in grace and in the gospel. Uh, I picked up the book, Resolutions, by Jonathan Edwards. Again, I do every year. Jonathan Edwards, uh, in his resolutions, said this, and I just want to read this. Being kind of beginning, he made a bunch of resolutions. and I, Being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help. Being sensible that I'm able, not able to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake. I can tell you, that's a great way to put it. And there is one way in which today I believe you can make a resolution that is agreeable to His will. Be resolved that God loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have given us your love, an incredible love, and a long-lasting eternal love that God cannot... Um, be bought, earned, but at the same time, uh, won't be diminished. Uh, God, thank you for that covenant that you made with us, that you love us. May we leave here today with that incredible joy, knowing that because you love us, you're making us like yourself, so that we might share in the glory of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.